Welcome, everybody, to Socratica Reads. My name is Kimberly Hatch Harrison, and I'm the co-founder of Socratica. We make beautiful, futuristic educational videos. We focus on math, science, and computer programming. And you can find us on YouTube and on our website, Socratica.com. In this podcast, Socratica Reads, I'm tracing the books that have inspired our work here at Socratica. It shouldn't come as too big of a surprise that it's very often science fiction that got into our brains and helped us dream of the future. But I want to be clear, that's a pretty wide net I'm casting. Are you a sci-fi snob? Do you insist on your science fiction being hard sci-fi? That is, the science fiction that focuses on rigorous applications of science and engineering, and usually features realistic rocket ships, and perfectly calculated orbits, and technically correct warp drives, and evolutionarily plausible alien life forms? Or can you accept that the genre is flexible, and that many remarkable works include elements of fantasy, drama, and mystery, and that some of these books leave out the technological details? I ask you this because it seems to me that many people I know read themselves into a corner, where they only read the same kind of book over and over. It doesn't help matters that we've moved away from wandering through libraries and physical bookstores. Part of that is due to the pandemic time, but even before then, were you relying on Amazon recommendations, for instance, that are just based on what other people also bought? If you bought one book by Larry Niven or Andy Weir, you're most likely to buy another hard sci-fi book. It's just common sense. It's good for Amazon's bottom line. But are you reading yourself into a self-imposed bubble? And I say this with great affection, because I love hard sci-fi. But I read everything, so of course I'm biased. I think this is the way to be. I am being somewhat hypocritical, because I have very little patience for incorrect science in movies. Nonsense physics really makes my skin crawl. For instance, you see characters jumping and landing at laughably incorrect rates, and I just don't get it. This isn't like a complicated physics problem. We've known the equations for a long time. There's no reason to just eyeball it and go with what you think looks cool. So when things like that happen, it really takes me out of the movie and completely breaks the illusion. It makes me angry <laughs> because I can feel the machinery behind the movie. There's some ignorant Yahoo at his computer doing the animations, thumbing his nose at the laws of physics. We have a lifetime of experience observing the laws of physics. And so when they violate them in a movie, we see it instantly and we know it's wrong. So I get it. If you expect rigor and correctness in your sci-fi books, I do get it. I think there's room for sci-fi that respects science, but doesn't put it in the center of the story. Today, I'm looking back at a book that I read at a very young age that I consider science fiction, of a sort. But it's also high fantasy and a coming-of-age story. And while there is science taking place, it's sometimes called magic. And yes, the details of how it all works are left as an exercise for the reader. 
I'm talking about The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. Depending on how you read the Narnia Chronicles, this is either the first story or the sixth in the series. Chronologically, it's the first. We see the birth of Narnia. What places this as sci-fi for me is not just that there is a character of a mad scientist, a cautionary tale, but also this work was my first exposure to the idea of parallel worlds. It gave me a picture of the birth of a world, the Big Bang, Narnia style. It also gave me the pleasure of watching children behave as scientists, observing, exploring, deducing the rules of how travel between these worlds works. If it's been a while since you've visited Narnia, I hope you will read these books again as a grown-up and think about how much they exposed you to important ideas so you would recognize them when you saw them again years later. Probably for me, the most important lesson from The Magician's Nephew was this. Just because you're a scientist doesn't mean you're an enlightened human being. I'm going to read a little of The Magician's Nephew to you now, but I do hope you will dig up your old copy or buy a new one. I'll include a link in the description box. Are you ready? Let's begin. Uncle Andrew was very tall and very thin. He had a long, clean-shaven face with a sharp nose and extremely bright eyes and a great tousled mop of gray hair. Diggory was quite speechless, for Uncle Andrew looked a thousand times more alarming than he had ever looked before. Polly was not so frightened yet, but she soon was, for the very first thing Uncle Andrew did was to walk across the door of the room, shut it, and turn the key in the lock. Then he turned round, fixed the children with his bright eyes, and smiled, showing all his teeth. There, he said, now my fool of a sister can't get at you. It was dreadfully unlike anything a grown-up would be expected to do. Polly's heart came into her mouth, and she and Diggory started backing towards the little door they had come in by. Uncle Andrew was too quick for them. He got behind them and shut that door too and stood in front of it. Then he rubbed his hands and made his knuckles crack. He had very long, beautifully white fingers. I am delighted to see you, he said. Two children are just what I wanted. Please, Mr. Ketterly, said Polly, I've got to go home. Will you let us out, please? Not just yet, said Uncle Andrew. This is too good an opportunity to miss. I wanted two children. You see, I'm in the middle of a great experiment. I've tried it on a guinea pig, and it seemed to work. But then a guinea pig can't tell you anything, and you can't explain to it how to come back. Look here, Uncle Andrew, said Diggory. It really is dinner time, and they'll be looking for us in a moment. You must let us out. Must, said Uncle Andrew. Diggory and Polly glanced at one another. They dared not say anything, but the glances meant, isn't this dreadful, and we must humor him. If you let us go out for our dinner now, said Polly, we could come back after dinner. Ah, uh, but how do I know that you would, said Uncle Andrew with a cunning smile. Then he seemed to change his mind. Well, well, he said, if you really must go, I suppose you must. I can't expect two youngsters like you to find it much fun talking to an old duffer like me, he sighed and went on. You've no idea how lonely I sometimes am. But no matter, go to your dinner. But I must give you a present before you go. It's not every day that I see a little girl in my dingy old study, especially, if I may say so, such a very attractive young lady as yourself. 
Polly began to think he might not really be mad after all. "'Wouldn't you like a ring, my dear?' said Uncle Andrew to Polly. "'Do you mean one of those yellow or green ones?' said Polly. "'How lovely!' "'Not a green one,' said Uncle Andrew. "'I'm afraid I can't give the green ones away, "'but I'd be delighted to give you any of the yellow ones with my love. "'Come and try one on.' Polly had now quite got over her fright, "'and felt sure that the old gentleman was not mad, "'and there was certainly something strangely attractive "'about those bright rings.' she moved over to the tray. Why, I declare, she said, the humming noise gets louder here. It's almost as if the rings were making it. What a funny fancy, my dear, said Uncle Andrew with a laugh. It sounded a very natural laugh, but Diggory had seen an eager, almost greedy look on his face. Polly, don't be a fool, he shouted. Don't touch them. It was too late. Exactly as he spoke, Polly's hand went out to touch one of the rings, and immediately, without a flash or a noise or a warning of any sort, there was no Polly. Diggory and his uncle were alone in the room. It was so sudden, and so horribly unlike anything that had ever happened to Diggory, even in a nightmare, that he let out a scream. Instantly, Uncle Andrew's hand was over his mouth. "'None of that!' he hissed in Diggory's ear. "'If you start making a noise, your mother'll hear it, "'and you know what a fright might do to her.' As Diggory said afterwards, the horrible meanness of getting at a chap in that way almost made him sick. But of course he didn't scream again. "'That's better,' said Uncle Andrew. "'Perhaps you couldn't help it. "'It is a shock when you first see someone vanish. "'Why, it even gave me a turn when the guinea pig did it last night.' "'Was that when you yelled?' asked Diggory. "'Oh, you heard that, did you? I hope you haven't been spying on me.' "'No, I haven't,' said Diggory indignantly. "'But what's happened to Polly?' "'Congratulate me, my dear boy,' said Uncle Andrew, rubbing his hands. "'My experiment has succeeded. The little girl's gone, vanished right out of the world. "'What have you done to her? Sent her to—' "'Well, to another place.' "'What do you mean?' asked Diggory. Uncle Andrew sat down and said, "'Well,' I'll tell you all about it. Have you ever heard of old Mrs. Le Fay? Wasn't she a great aunt or something? said Diggory. Not exactly, said Uncle Andrew. She was my godmother. That's her there, on the wall. Diggory looked and saw a faded photograph. It showed the face of an old woman in a bonnet, and he could now remember that he had once seen a photo of the same face in an old drawer at home in the country. He had asked his mother who it was, and Mother had not seemed to want to talk about the subject much. It was not at all a nice face, Diggory thought, though of course with those early photographs one could never really tell. Was there... wasn't... was there something wrong with her, Uncle Andrew? He said. Well, said Uncle Andrew with a chuckle, it depends on what you call wrong. People are so narrow-minded. She certainly got very queer in later life. Did very unwise things. That was why they shut her up. In an, in an asylum, do you mean? Oh, no, 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 said Uncle Andrew in a shocked voice. Nothing of that sort. Only in prison. I say, said Diggory, what had she done? Ah, poor woman, said Uncle Andrew. She had been very unwise. There were a good many different things. Oh, we needn't go into all of that. She was always very kind to me. But look here, what has this all got to do with Polly? I do wish you all in good time, my boy, said Uncle Andrew. They let old Mrs. Lefray out before she died, and I was one of the very few people whom she would allow to see her in her last illness. She had got to dislike ordinary, ignorant people, you understand. I do myself. 
But she and I were interested in the same sort of things. It was only a few days before her death that she told me to go to an old bureau in her house and open a secret drawer and bring her a little box that I would find there. The moment I picked up that box, I could tell by the pricking in my fingers that I held some great secret in my hands. She gave it to me and made me promise that as soon as she was dead, I would burn it unopened with certain ceremonies. That promise I did not keep. Well, then it was jolly rotten of you, said Dickory. Rotten, said Uncle Andrew with a puzzled look. Oh, I see. You mean that little boys ought to keep their promises. Very true. Most right and proper, I'm sure, and I'm very glad you have been taught to do it. But of course, you must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women, even people in general, can't possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. No, Diggory. Men like me, who possess hidden wisdom, are freed from common rules, just as we are cut off from common pleasures. Ours, my boy, is a high and lonely destiny. As he said this, he sighed, and looked so grave and noble and mysterious, that for a second Diggory really thought he was saying something rather fine. But then he remembered the ugly look he had seen on his uncle's face the moment before Polly had vanished, and all at once he saw through Uncle Andrew's grand words. All it means, he said to himself, is that he thinks he can do anything he likes to get anything he wants. Of course, said Uncle Andrew, I didn't dare to open the box for a long time, for I knew it might contain something highly dangerous, for my godmother was a very remarkable woman. The truth is, she was one of the last mortals in this country who had fairy blood in her. She said there had been two others in her time, one was a duchess and the other a charwoman. In fact, Diggory, you are now talking to the last man, possibly, who really had a fairy godmother. There, that will be something for you to remember when you are an old man yourself. I bet she was a bad fairy, thought Diggory, and added out loud, but what about Polly? How you do harp on on that, said Uncle Andrew, as if that was what mattered. My first task was, of course, to study the box itself. It was very ancient, and I knew enough, even then, to know it wasn't Greek, or Old Egyptian, or Babylonian, or Hittite, or Chinese. It was older than any of those nations. Ah, that was a great day when I at last found out the truth. The box was Atlantean. It came from the lost island of Atlantis. That meant it was centuries older than any of the Stone Age things they dig up in Europe. And it wasn't a rough, crude thing like them, either. For in the very dawn of time, Atlantis was already a great city with palaces and temples and learned men. He paused for a moment, as if he expected Diggory to say something. But Diggory was disliking his uncle more every minute, so he said nothing. Meanwhile, continued Uncle Andrew, I was learning a good deal in other ways, wouldn't be proper to explain them to a child, about magic in general. That meant I came to have a fair idea what sort of things might be in the box. By various tests, I narrowed down the possibilities. I had to get to know some, well, some devilish queer people, and go through some very disagreeable experiences. That was what turned my head grey. One doesn't become a magician for nothing. My health broke down in the end, but I got better, and at last I actually knew.
Although there was not really the least chance of anyone overhearing them, he leaned forward and almost whispered as he said, The Atlantean box contained something that had been brought from another world when our world was only just beginning. What? asked Diggory, who was now interested in spite of himself. Only dust, said Uncle Andrew. Fine, dry dust. Nothing much to look at. Not much to show for a lifetime of toil, you might say. Uh, but when I looked at that dust, I took jolly good care not to touch it, and thought that every grain had once been in another world. I don't mean another planet, you know. They're part of our world, and you could get to them if you went far enough. But a really other world, another nature, another universe, somewhere you would never reach even if you traveled through the space of this universe forever and ever. A world that could be reached only by magic. Well, here Uncle Andrew rubbed his hands till his knuckles crackled like fireworks. I knew, he went on, that if only you could get it into the right form, that dust would draw you back to the place it had come from. But the difficulty was to get it into the right form. My earlier experiments were all failures. I tried them on guinea pigs. Some of them only died. Some exploded like little bombs. Was a jolly cruel thing to do, said Diggory, who had once had a guinea pig of his own. How you do keep getting off the point, said Uncle Andrew. That was what the creatures were there for. I'd bought them myself. Let me see. Where was I? Ah, uh, yes. At last I succeeded in making the rings. The yellow rings. But now a new difficulty arose. I was pretty sure now that a yellow ring would send any creature that touched it into the other place. But what would be the good of that if I couldn't get them back to tell me what they had found there? And what about them? said Diggory. A nice mess they'd be in if they couldn't get back. You will keep looking at everything from the wrong point of view, said Uncle Andrew, with a look of impatience. Can't you understand that the thing is a great experiment? The whole point of sending anyone into the other place is that I want to find out what it's like. Oh, well, why didn't you go yourself then? Diggory had hardly ever seen anyone look so surprised and offended as his uncle did at this simple question. Me? Me? he exclaimed. The boy must be mad. A man at my time of life and in my state of health? To risk the shock and the dangers of being flung suddenly into a different universe? I never heard anything so preposterous in my life. Do you realize what you're saying? Think what another world means. You might meet anything. Anything. And I suppose you've sent Polly into it then, said Diggory. His cheeks were flaming with anger now. And all I can say, he added, even if you are my uncle, is that you've behaved like a coward sending a girl to a place you're afraid to go to yourself. Silence, sir said Uncle Andrew, bringing his hand down on the table. I will not be talked to like that by a little dirty schoolboy. You don't understand. I am the great scholar, the magician, the adept who is doing the experiment. Of course I need subjects to do it on. Bless my soul, you'll be telling me next that I ought to have asked the guinea pigs permission before I used them. No great wisdom can be reached without sacrifice. But the idea of my going myself is ridiculous. It's like asking a general to fight as a common soldier. Supposing I got killed, what would become of my life's work? Oh, do stop jawing, said Diggory. Are you going to bring Polly back? 
I was going to tell you when you so rudely interrupted me, said Uncle Andrew, that I did at last find out a way of doing the return journey. The green rings draw you back. But Polly hasn't got a green ring. No, said Uncle Andrew with a cruel smile.